Today's reading is Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all of his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A while ago, the Atlantic magazine ran this article. It's titled, What Happens When We All Live to 100? I just love that photo, for one thing. (laughs) That's just so cool. Um, It kind of makes you stare. Greg Easterbrook uh, begins the article by saying, For millennia, if not for eons, life expectancy was short. The few people who grew old were assumed, because of their years, to have won the favor of the gods. The typical person was fortunate to reach 40. Beginning in the 19th century, that slowly changed. Since 1840, life expectancy at birth has risen about three months with each passing year. When the 20th century began, life expectancy at birth in America was 47 years. Now newborns are expected to live 79 years. If about three months continue to be added with each passing year, by the middle of this century, American life expectancy at birth will be 88 years. By the end of the century, it will be 100 years. Now, for some of you, 79 years seems way out on the horizon. For others, it seems too close for comfort. You hear the clock ticking. And for others, you've already passed the 79-year mark, and each year is a victory lap for you. (laughs) And while each of us differs with the amount of time that we have remaining in our lives, because the 79 years is not a guarantee, obviously, it's just an estimate, we all share one thing in common, and it is this, that we all have one life to live. We all have one life to live. You're born, you have an unknown life expectancy, and then you die. The bookends, the being born and the dying, are certain. But it's that middle part that's filled with uncertainties. Uncertainties like, what will you do with that one life? What will you do with your one life? And better yet, what's worth so much that you'd be willing to give your one life to it? 
Is it your work life? Your business life? Your successful life? The freedom to do as you please life? The good-looking life? The curated life? What life is it that is, so, that is worth so much you'd be willing to give this one life to it? Perhaps you're looking back on your life. At your age and life stage, the options have narrowed for you, and you're sensing that as well. But the question still remains, with whatever time you have left, what will you do with this one life? What's worth so much that you would spend your one life on it? Well, I want to give you opportunity to consider this question in the moments we have here together this morning. And it's not an easy question for a variety of reasons. First, there's the reality of limitations in life. There's the reality of limitations in life. There are only so many job opportunities, so many professions, houses, friends, dates, vacations, entertainment options that are available. So to commit to this job, to this spouse, to this educational track, to this location, is to withdraw time and energy and focus from another possibility. In other words, to be human is to be limited. It's to be finite. But this question is also made difficult for another reason. There's the reality of distraction. The reality of distraction. The Latin root for that word means literally to tear apart, to pull asunder. And when we're distracted, we're dragged away from what's worthwhile. In other words, something that's something we value less is diverting our attention from something we value more or we, perhaps we should value more. But this raises a question of value. What is best? And perhaps it's our inattention to what's really of value in life that allows us to be so easily distracted from what really matters. We're no longer sure what really matters. So I want to continue our summer series titled Short Stories by Jesus as we explore this question of worth and value through two short parables that Jesus tells recorded by Matthew in his gospel. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. I had Chris read another text that's about, that kind of focuses in on this, but these are two very, very, very short parables. Matthew 13. There's a Bible underneath your seat if you didn't bring one. And it's page 819 in those Bibles. We're looking at verses 44 to 46 in Matthew 13. And I'll read the text to you. The kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now these are labeled as parables, but they really function as similitudes. And what is a similitude? Something is like something else, okay? And that's what you see when you read these two parables. There's movement, but there's no real developed plot like you would find in other short stories that Jesus tells. We've seen other parables where there's much more of a plot line that's developed by Jesus, but these are much shorter and they're called similitudes. These are twin similitudes because Jesus connects them with again. 
but it doesn't mean that they're identical. They may point to the same reality, but they have different features, okay? But both, if you're looking down at the text, are about the kingdom of heaven. They both, 44 and 45, start with the word, the kingdom of heaven. In the first, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a treasure hidden in a field. A man comes along, he discovers it, he then reburies it so he can have the time to go away, sell all that he possesses, and come and buy the field to possess the treasure that's in it. In the second, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a wholesaler who's looking for fine pearls. And when he finds a particularly valuable one, he sells all that he has to buy that one. Pretty straightforward. In both of them, Jesus focuses on the behavior of the finder. He finds something that he values so highly. Notice in both of them, it's worth all that he has that he takes the necessary steps to acquire it. So Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of heaven is this valuable. It's present and it's waiting to be recognized for its value. When it's recognized as being present and valuable, it deserves a response. Got it? So this then raises a question, perhaps, for some people sitting out here, maybe some people that are not as familiar with the Bible, is what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is referring to here? I mean, if he says it's so valuable, then it makes sense that we would want to know what he's talking about, right? If he says this is so valuable, we can't afford to not know what it is that he's talking about here or assume that we know. Now, the kingdom of heaven is Matthew's way of talking about the kingdom of God. In both Mark and Luke, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. Matthew chooses to use the word heaven out of respect for his largely Jewish audience who he is writing to, to. For them, the sacred name of God was something you did not pronounce. So Matthew substitutes the sacred name of God, for heaven, because heaven is the location where God is found, and his Jewish readers would know that he's referring to God. So when you read kingdom of heaven, don't think heaven off in the distance, but rather the kingdom of God. So that helps to then fill in what it is that Jesus is talking about here. Because Jesus came in Mark, in, Mark's, in the earliest gospel, Mark chapter 1, Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God. Mark says that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, the good news, and then he defines the good news as that the kingdom of God is near. The time is fulfilled. The time that everybody has been waiting for, Jesus says in Mark 1, is now here. The kingdom of God is near. And then he says, repent and believe, trust, turn, and embrace this new reality that has come upon us. So Jesus' message, Jesus' good news, was good news about the kingdom of God being present. It was not good news about the fact that believe in me and you can go to heaven when you die. That was not what Jesus talked about. Rather, Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God is present in and through me. And Jesus proclaimed this, he taught it, and he displayed it. And if you understand that, then it begins to make sense of the Gospels as you read the Gospels. So what is the kingdom of God in its simplest form, in its most simple definition? It's God 
acting. It's God acting. It's God acting to restore the world to what it's meant to be. Now, here's a diagram I created yesterday because this one struck me. I went like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this for them. If you want to understand kind of this in a big, picture, big, big brush, broad brush stroke, you read Genesis and you see that God's intention was always to use humanity, to partner with humanity, to cultivate the world, to bless the world through his partnership with humanity. And when humanity rebelled against him, he chose to work through one man, Abraham. He gives a promise to Abraham and he says, it's through you that I'm going to bless the world. In Genesis 18, he says to him that through, is, through a people that is going to come from him, namely Israel, that they are going to be a light to the world. And so you see the arrows going up because that reaches its apex, its climax in David and in his kingdom. And once Solomon takes over, it begins to go downhill, hence the downhill trajectory of the arrows. And once again, God's plan narrows in on one person. This time it's Jesus. He's going to fulfill his promises to bless the world. Israel was supposed to be the light to the world, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 60. Israel was to be the light to the world, but they failed to do it. So his plan, once again, narrows down, and this time it's on Jesus. And lo and behold, what do we find in Matthew 5? Jesus turning to his disciples, and he says to them, you are the light of the world. And to those who would follow and believe through the disciples as they, as they gave this good news. And as Jew and Gentile now come together around Jesus, we call that the church. You are the light of the world. The blessing is intended to go out again. And God is going to use a people, us. We are the people that God is choosing to partner with to bless the world. I don't know if that sobers you up or that gives you any sense of like, wow. You know what I mean? I, I don't know what kind of analogies might be helpful to you. Maybe if you played sports, it's, it's, it's the quarterback who goes down in the fourth quarter and, and you're, right, you're, about ready to, you're on the, the opponent's 10-yard line and all you need to do is punch it through and the quarterback gets injured and he turns to you and he says, you are the one who's going to win this game for us. That's not a time you go hide in the back. You've got to step up and you've got to take the responsibility and you've got to realize that people are depending upon you. And I don't know what analogy fits for you, but God is depending upon us. He has chosen to partner with us. He has chosen to, to accomplish his plan to restore the world through us now. He says, you are the light of the world. And that's what we see with, when we, that's, that's what makes sense of of what Jesus is doing when we look at the Gospels and we see Jesus going around and healing people. He's not trying to prove that he, he has supernatural powers and therefore he's divine. That's what I grew up being taught. That all Jesus was doing and all that was just giving his credentials all the time. Showing, yes, yeah, see, 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 I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. And I was all like, well, how many times do you need to do that? But that misses the point. Jesus was doing this not to prove that he was divine, but rather he's showing people what the world looks like when God is in charge. And so he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, If I, by the hand of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is among you. Why? Because in God's worlds, the demons don't have the upper hand. So when Jesus casts out the demons, he's saying the kingdom of God has broken in because in God's kingdom, evil does not have the upper hand. 
And that makes sense of, of what Jesus is doing in the kingdom of God. The sick are healed, the blind see, the lame walk, the hungry are fed. In God's kingdom, there's no more poverty, no more war, no more genocide. Corruption, cover-ups, racism, abuse, contempt, greed, hoarding, scarcity, loneliness, suspicion, cynicism. Did I mention death? There's no more death in God's kingdom. This is what Jesus came to bring into the world. And his announcement was that in me, this has begun. God's new world has broken into this world. The fact that most of us are going on living as if this is the only world that there is does not mean that it is not breaking in. The fact that we walk around blind does not mean that it is not breaking in. In Jesus, this reality has started. God's new world has begun. And that's what Jesus teaches his followers when he tells them to pray. When you're talking to your father, say this. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The earth is the only planet where God's will is not done. Every place else in the universe, God's will is done. But only on this one planet is God's will not done. And he says, we need to be praying that God's will would be done. Because when his kingdom breaks in, his will is done. And when his will is done, guess what it looks like? There's truth. There's goodness. There's beauty. There's human flourishing. There's love. So the gospel, the good news of the kingdom is more than forgiveness of sins. It's deliverance into life. Boy, I tell you, if I, if I could emblazon that upon people and then say, now, just take that one thing and go out and talk to people. It's not simply about forgiveness of sins. And too many people have, have basically assigned that to, our, to us as Christians, that you guys are just concerned about telling me I'm a sinner and then telling me there's forgiveness of sins. Now, the problem is Death. The problem is that we're all going to die, and what we need is a solution to death, and it's life. It's life. And Jesus has come with this gospel of life. Yes, there's forgiveness of sins, but it's much more than that. It's about deliverance into life. So my question to you is, if this is all true, if this is real, would this be valuable for the world we live in? I mean, do you, do you pay attention to the news? Do you read the news? Do you, do you I mean... Do you, do you get some news source during the week? Or maybe you can't take too much news because it is so discouraging, so disheartening, so oppressive. But you know what? If you're paying attention to the news, how do you respond? I'm going to offer you a suggestion for responding that every time you see a news headline, you say, this is proof that the world needs the kingdom of God. Let it be a reflexive um, catalyst for you to, to say this is once again proof that the world needs the kingdom of God to break in. So Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
If this is so true, if this is so real, does the world need this? And, and I guess that's a question each one of us has to answer. That, or does, or we, do we just let the world go on and just say that's just the way things are? Does your workplace need this? What I've described about the kingdom of God. Do your, perhaps does your family need this? Or does your extended family need this? Maybe does your marriage need this? Does your neighborhood need this? That is being described. Is it worth so much that you'd be willing to give your one life to it? See, if we really see that this is so good and the world really needs this, then the question we're faced with, is it worth so much that you'd be willing to give your one life to it? Is it so valuable that you'd be willing to give your one life to it? And for that to happen, we have to value the kingdom over all other possible things we might value in life. And that's what these two parables are about. Jesus is inviting us to see the value of the kingdom of God so that we will align our lives with God's working in the world. So Jesus is inviting us to partner with God in his work in the world. How? Well, simply to be people through whom God makes his kingdom real, tangible, present for others to experience. And then to invite others into the life in the kingdom. I first of all need to be a person through whom someone might see what the kingdom of God looks like. Perhaps it's through my generosity. Perhaps it's through my love. Perhaps it's my willingness to listen to someone and be attentive to them when nobody else bothers to listen to anybody in this world. In those moments, in those small moments that might seem insignificant to us, we are modeling what the kingdom of God looks like as we bring life to others. And the more we do that, then the more we have opportunity to invite people into the life of the kingdom. Would you like to experience more of what we're experiencing together? It's found within the kingdom of God. It's found as a gift that comes from Jesus. And this is where Dallas Willard has been so helpful in explaining how this works. And he explains the process of transformation through the acronym VIM. And that's, he, he talks about VIM and vigor, but it stands for vision, intention, and means. And by intention, he means decisions, and it can include your desires as well. So vision, intention, and means. Now, he gives the illustration of why is it that some people might be motivated to, to learn a second and third language. For example, I went over to Germany um, recently, loved Berlin, absolutely just, I would go back there in a heartbeat, it was so cool. And I came back and I thought to myself, I, man, if I, just, if, I just, if I just learn German, I could go back and I could really feel like I'm totally in the, you know, in the, in the vibe and in the experience. <laughs> So I came back and I looked at the Rosetta Stone, you know, the language acquisition stuff, and it was really expensive. And I don't know any German still. And I'm not really highly motivated because I can get along really well in everything that I'm doing right now without knowing German. Now, you look at somebody else who comes from another country. Their motivation to acquire English is different than my motivation to acquire German. Why? Because they see a different life that's made possible if they acquired English and they did it really well. And that's often why you see people in other countries that have mastery of multiple languages because they know in order to better their life, they have to have these multiple languages. I talked to somebody recently in international business and, and I asked them about how many languages they had. It was fascinating to talk to them about their language acquisition, motivation, vision, 
It's vision. Vision has to drive it. You have to have a vision of something that is better in order to drive then the intentions, the decisions, and then the means. See, you can go out, you can buy the Rosetta Stone tapes or CDs, whatever they are, and you say, okay, I have the means, but I don't have, there's no decision that's driving it. There's no intention because I don't have a vision of something that might be driving it. It's why exercise equipment sits out on people's lawns for sale. Because you have all the, you, you say, if I just have the means, I'll lose the weight. No, you don't have the intention yet because you don't have a vision of what it is, of what a better life would look like if you did this exercise. So I think that his, what Dallas Willard holds out, I think it's very, it's very helpful. It's about being motivated by a vision of a better life. So transformation, he says, into Christ-likeness results from getting this vision of a, of, of a better reality of, of, of goodness. Now listen to the quote that he gives. I think it's really helpful. He says, in sum... Uh, I think we need the other one. Where are we starting? I'm looking at yours. Mm, let's go to the other one. Mm, boy, that was something happened there. All right, so let's just forget that up there. I don't know what happened. It's not your pr- problem, Adam, okay? I don't know what happened. Uh, so I'll just, I have it up here. Um, in sum, the problem of spiritual transformation, really of the normal lack thereof, among those who identify as Christians today, is not that it is impossible or that effectual means to it are not available. The problem is that spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness is not intended. People do not see it and its value and decide to carry through with it. They do not decide to do the things Jesus did and said. And this, in turn, is today largely due to the fact that they have not been given a vision of life in God's kingdom within which such a decision and intention would make sense. The gospel they have heard did not bring that vision. So you see what he's saying? That unless we have a vision of the kingdom of God and of the value of the kingdom of God, we will not make decisions toward that. And obviously the means will not be there either. So you see, I and you and we will live into the reality of the kingdom of God and we will invite others into it to the extent that we have a vision of the value of the kingdom of God. And just to be clear, this is not a call to activism, all right? But rather, it's an invitation to value what God values and then to align our lives with his purposes. And ultimately, if you want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that's it. Okay? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means valuing what God values and then aligning our lives with that. And, and that's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing process of learning what it is that God values and learning how to align our lives into it, in step with that, making decisions all the time to do that, and feeding ourselves, in a sense, with, with the value of God's kingdom so that we will, we will want to decide to do that. So I want to make it really practical here. How might you fuel this vision? If it's about them, if it's about vision, if that's the key thing that's going to drive the decisions, then how might you fuel the vision for God's kingdom? That was the question I was left with in my preparation of this this week. So I want to offer you something very practical, and I've started to do it myself. And that is to take the Lord's Prayer and to make it part of your breathing. Say, how do you do that? Well, you know about inhaling and exhaling, right? You do that all the time. You do it automatically. 
Well, if the vision of of God's kingdom is going to be something that moves us, it has to be something that's automatic to us, something that is all that's part of who we are. And in the Lord's Prayer, he gives these two lines. Jesus says, pray these two things. May your kingdom come, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come is the inspiration. It's breathing in. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's expiration. That's breathing out. So you see, in taking those two pieces, it's like breathing in and breathing out. And if you just take those two pieces throughout the day, and as you encounter the news, as you encounter conversations, as you encounter stuff that you're seeing on social media, or you're seeing in people's lives, or you're hearing about it, then you breathe in and you breathe out. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done in this person's life. May your will be done in this situation. May your will be done in this government. May your will be done in this country. You breathe in and you breathe out. And that's the posture of a disciple of Jesus. And that begins to then shape our, our vision for the kingdom. I guarantee you that if you're breathing that air, if you're breathing inspiring and expiring that prayer on a regular basis, your eyes will be opened like they never have before to the value of God's kingdom, of how worthwhile it is. And that in turn can affect your giving your one life to it. I pray that for you. May God use us to be those people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your spirit's desire to to use us. And I I ask today that for that one, two, I don't know how many people who have taken themselves out of of your, your partnership for whatever reason. They've just gotten busy or they've gotten discouraged or they've gotten burned by church or Christianity, whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that you would bring them back in. Show them that you want to use them. Give them a sense of this one life that we have and how time is moving and that you have given us the opportunity to be involved in the thing that matters most and is of greatest value. And so I ask, Father, that you would, um, you would put within us this this ability to breathe your kingdom into reality as we face the things that we're going to be seeing this week and hearing about. And then we would expect to see you work. Thank you that you love this world and that you desire to bring your kingdom to bear upon it. So Jesus, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.